And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Well, all right, there you go. Now, we are talking. Another great introduction by our fine announcer, Larry Babb. Larry, thank you so much for that. And welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by your good friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele, and today's show is going to be a fun one. And that's mostly because of the built-in fun factor with our guest, Don Zabel. Uh, This episode actually will... It's going to have us featuring segments from two separate interviews that we did with Don. And I suppose it's timely. And in as we just sadly had to say goodbye to Don a little less than two weeks ago at the age of 89. And by the way, man, uh, it's not been a great month or so in this department as we also lost our guest from our previous episode, which just aired uh, about a month ago, uh, Willie Davis, Uh, you know, since that show aired, uh, in fact, it was not too long after that show first aired. So, and not to mention the fact that we just lost Gino Lacoste uh, less than a week ago, about three days before we're taping this. So, as they say, Sometimes when it rains, it pours. And, uh, but you know, that being said, and since we're here, I do want to make something clear regarding this show and what we do. Um, it is never our intention, and we hope we never come across as delivering something that is, you know, in any way maudlin or a downer. Um, this is not a place for that. Uh, no matter what the news, or the circumstances going on in the world of hot rodding. Uh, this is all about celebration. It's something that the American Hot Rod Foundation tries to emphasize with everything it does. Uh, we really hope that comes across. These these great pioneers that we have the, the honor to sit down with and hear stories from, they'll be the first to tell you that what they've done and how they've spent their lives is something to be envied. And we feel is something we can all learn from. Uh, now, the foundation can proudly say that we've completed around 100 film interviews with really some of our greatest hot rod legends. And I can't think of a single one that I've walked away from not feeling completely inspired by and you know, armed with a whole new batch of positive strategies for having a better life. I mean, uh, this is what we feel is so great about this stuff. Um, you know, it is about hot rodding, but it's not just about hot rodding. It's, it's a study of people who followed their dreams and, you know, have done exactly what they wanted to do with their lives. Uh, it happens that our subjects 
are from the hot rodding and racing world, but that's only because that is our passion. But again, we hope that what gets passed on here is the same stuff that keeps the foundation going and inspires us to continue our work of, you know, as we like to say, preserving, promoting, and celebrating the history of hot rodding. So with that, sit back and enjoy a two-segment interview with, I'm happy to say, my dear old friend, the late, great Don Zabel. Um, And again, we're using audio from um, a 2006 interview that my fellow American Hot Rod Foundation partner in crime and archivist extraordinaire Jim Miller uh, did with some help from our previous director, Henry Astor, and um, and then a few excerpts uh, will follow that from my interview that I did with Don in uh, 2013, that was. So um, we hope you enjoy this candid look at really one of our favorite folks and, man, a no-nonsense, real-deal car guy. So settle in for our talk with the late, great Don Zabel. I get your name and the year you're born. Oh, boy. Don Zabel, uh, January 27th, uh, 1928. But I got a lot of people thinking it was 1918 just for one of my <laughs> dumb jokes. <laughs> okay. What city were you born in? Glendale, California, right down the road. Did you grow up in that area? Well, I lived in Eagle Rock as a kid. And between Eagle Rock and up here in Tahunga, I've lived in L.A. all my life. Yeah. What was the surroundings like? Was it pretty simple or crowded? or? No crowd. And half, Eagle Rock was half vacant lots, you know. And up here it was just bare, just uh, hillsides full of brush. In fact, when we bought here, this street wasn't even in. Uh, this was all just a uh, small orchard, I guess. And uh, anyway, we wound up moving. We've been here 55, 50 years now. Yeah, yeah. What's your first memory of things automotive? Oh boy, I mean like a, a little, little kid? Yeah. Well, just riding around with my dad. We used to count cars and of course in them days there was no foreign cars around yet. It was all American stuff. Don't get me started. And uh, uh, we'd what brands they are, and then we started watching license plates and just went from there, you know, yeah. I was riding around in the back seat of my dad's old car. When did you start getting interested in the mechanical part of it? Well, funny, as a little kid, first I got interested in airplanes. And I always had it up here, I was going to be a hot rock fighter pilot someday. I was building model airplanes and flying them and fooling around. And I forget how old I was. I was still a little kid. All at once I found out that, on account of my eyes, I couldn't qualify for military or commercial pilot. So that blew the fighter pilot part. And I said, well, nuts, if I can't fly, I'll fool around. Couldn't fly fast airplanes, I got to fool around with fast cars, and I got interested in racing and old hot rods. When I was a little kid, we had a neighbor. My dad didn't care about him, but there was a guy across the street with two boys. Uh, he used to take us to the races years ago, the old original Ascot and then Gilmer, of course, when I was about yay high. And it just went from there, you know. 
What uh, was your first car? Uh, when I was about 13, 14 years old, I come home with a Model T in pieces and parts. This other guy had been fooling with it and give up on it, couldn't get it running. So for a couple of bucks, which is all I had, this guy gave it to me and I hauled it home. My dad come home one night and here was this Model T parts in his driveway. He about had a fit, but I found out later he thought that uh, he was thinking, oh, this dumb kid, he'll never get it running, so he wouldn't have to worry about me driving it, you know. Well, a couple of weeks we had it running, me and a buddy of mine snuck it up and down the driveway, and before long I snuck it around the block a time or two. Went from there. <laughs> Where did you learn to work on cars? Just... just doing it. Just fiddled around. I started collecting and buying tools when I was a little kid, and my dad had a lot of tools. I used them, borrowed them, and... Uh, i just been buying and collecting tools since I was probably about 10 years old. When did you get your driving license? Uh, in those days you couldn't drive or have a license till you were 16. Of course, I was driving at about 14. And uh, believe it or not, the first time I ever got stopped by the cops was the afternoon, the same day that I got my driver's license. I just had that thing in my pocket a couple hours and the cops stopped me. I got by with it for two years with no license. <laughs> did you go out and do any street racing then? Mm, you mean, did I ever do anything illegal? I didn't say that. Oh. <laughs> well, a little bit. Yeah. There's some pretty good guys, too. Someone like Jack McGrath and Manuel Ayulo and a lot of them guys that wound up at Indianapolis used to street race for those guys. Yeah, they did, too. Were there a lot of street riders or car kids interested? In yeah, there was at that, not like it, but you know, in them days, we were bad news. In school, junior high and high school, the kids that were fooling around with old cars and hot rods, they treated us like hell's angels. I mean, we were bad, according to them, at that time, and uh, they did, you know, we were just a waste of wasting our time. You know, every graduating class has this most likely to succeed bunch bunch of straight-A students. Uh, we were just the opposite. But years later, at the 50th anniversary of Eagle Rock High School, somebody got up and said they finally figured out that us bums that fooled around with the old cars in the long run turned out better than they did. <laughs> they, they didn't like to hear that, but it's true. <laughs> what got you into the race car end of it? Well, when this guy took uh, took me as a kid with his kids, and uh, I don't know, I just like the the competition, I guess, and anything mechanical, anything anything that had wheels and go fast and make noise, and you know, just went from there. Before long, I was doing it. <laughs> you were in some car clubs. Yeah, uh, had the old uh, Eagle Rock Trompers. Started in junior high school and fooled around with them for a long time, and it got, uh, they weren't doing that much racing anymore, so I went to the LA Gophers, along with Jack McGrath and a whole bunch of other guys, Don Blair and a lot of them, and uh, raced with them pretty much until I went into service. And then when I come out of the service, uh, run to them for a while, and for long, uh, we got into. Sprint cars and midgets, you know, you know, old dirt tracks, which I'm still active in, sort of halfway. 
Uh, going from the street, did you first go to the dry lakes to race, or? We did the dry lakes and the early drags, too. We went some of the first legal, when they could drag race legally. Uh, Sawgust and, uh, boy, Colton, Fontana. We used to run the old track car Friday and Saturday night at one of the racetracks around here locally. We'd come, we'll get home about midnight or later Saturday night after the races, pull the engine out of the track car. We didn't have a spare engine in those days. Track car didn't work too good at the dry lakes. We'd pull the engine out of that thing and stuff it in my 32 Roadster and head for El Mirage. And run up there Sunday morning. Then Sunday afternoon, we'd catch one of the old original drag strips on the way home. So there, in just two or three days, we'd ran several different events, uh, you know, drags, dry lakes, circle track, with the same engine in two different cars. <laughs> Didn't think anything about it. <laughs> when you were younger, did you go and hang out in anybody's shops or speed shops or anything like that? Uh, wasn't really a speed shop, but old Dave Mitchell, Mitchell's Muffler, had a shop in Eagle Rock years ago. Used to hang around there and watch him weld and stuff. Uh, and I knew Blair years ago, Don and Bruce Blair. A lot of people don't even know Don had a brother named Bruce. And uh, never worked for him. A lot of guys did, but I just knew him well, and we horse traded a lot of stuff. In fact, Don bought two of our old sprint cars years ago. We'd build at least one new car every winter, sometimes a couple. And Don bought a couple of our cars that... Uh, Bruce and I built my partner, Bruce Robinson, at that time, yeah. We built all our stuff from scratch. You didn't buy anything in them days, you built it. Did you work on anybody other, other people's cars at that time? Uh, no, just helping. Everybody helped everybody. No big deal, yeah. Uh -huh. At that time, uh, later on, A.J. Watson still had his Indianapolis car roadster shop in Glendale. I used to hang around there. Help him a little bit, but I didn't have a lot of time. But uh, then, of course, before long, he moved to Indianapolis. Yeah, we're still back there. Yeah. Tell us about some of your drag exploits and where they were. Oh, you know, in those days, they didn't even have ET. And half the time, you didn't even have a, 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 a top time. Just whoever got down there first. There were no lights. And, uh, we didn't even know how fast he was going for a long time. We just, you know, just whoever got to the finish line first. <laughs> yeah, which, which tracks were local that you raced on? Uh, you mean circle track? No, drag. Oh, drag. Well, it started out, uh, used to be uh, out here at San Fernando Airport, which is now gone. There's a parallel runway out there they used to let us use. And Saugus, Colton, Fontana, and then, uh, what's his name, put on that first drag race down at the old Blimp Base down at Santa Ana. Ran that thing. CJ Yeah. And uh, we didn't race through the hangars, but coming back, we used to drive through those old empty hangars down there, you know. And uh, there again, we weren't supposed to, but uh, I've done over 100 mile an hour in those hangars. <laughs> sure you guys didn't break any rules. No, we never did nothing illegal. We were nice guys. That's it. Um, 
There is a rumor that at one time you held some drag records. I don't know about drag records. Uh, I don't even remember mine. We run pretty good. We won a lot of them. Got some little, in those days, trophies were about that high. And, uh, but uh, we won a bunch of drag races. Yeah, did, yeah. Uh, we won a bunch of old CRA Roadster and Sprint car races. How did you get from the Dry Lakes to doing the roadster racing? We just kind of got tired of going in the straight line. Wanted to go sideways in the dirt. <laughs> Bang wheels sideways. Now we used to drag race at Elm Rodge years ago. And also Muroc before that. Uh, instead of two abreast, it was about six, eight, or ten abreast. They got kind of hairy too with everybody skating around. <laughs> did you run at Muroc then? Yeah, just uh, some of the, towards the end, just before the military took it over. Yeah, and we got run out of there, of course. Yeah. Uh -huh. What were the cars like then? Well, kind of crude compared to nowadays or even after the war. Uh, they were really almost stock roadsters with the fenders pulled off. Yeah. Yeah. Street cars? Huh? Were they all street cars basically then? Pretty much. Most guys drove them up, and if you didn't blow it up, you drove it home. Oh. If you had a problem, somebody would tow you home on the end of a rope. There were no trailers in them days, up before we even built a tow bar. Later on, we built tow bars and pulled them on the ground. But uh, you hope you didn't blow it up, and you drove it home. Yeah. Tell us about the experience of going to the lakes and getting back. Well, we used to, from here, we'd always go up through Palmdale. In those days, Palmdale, I think, was one little store and one gas station. That was it. Now it's a big city. Uh, from there on, it was mostly a dirt road all the way out there. That's all I can remember. And sometimes it was pretty rough, too. Yeah. Did you spend the night out there? Or? Well, we didn't on the kind of racing Saturday night down here. Most guys did. They'd go up Friday or Saturday morning and stay. But we didn't get there till Sunday morning because we raced here Saturday night and we had to swap engines between the cars. Yeah. Okay. You said you're a member of the CRA. Could you explain how that organization came about or how you got involved? Well, right after the war, uh, it was originally the California Roadster Association, which was all just hopped up Model Ts mostly. Some guys were even racing 32s on the tracks, but most of them were Model Ts. Again, most of them were flathead, either four bangers or flathead V8 engines. And uh, there again, even in them guys on the tracks, believe it or not, some guys drove their cars to the races. They'd pull off the windshield and headlights and race them. If they didn't crash them, they put the stuff back on and drove them home. <laughs> That's the way it all started. Did they get any money for that? Or? Yeah, but just a few bucks. It was so little that... Uh, of course, in those days, it didn't cost much to run. Nowadays, boy, it's all big bucks with big sponsors or you're in big trouble. But, uh, yeah, there was, there was money, and it was considered professional. We didn't care, but just because you, anytime you get paid, it's professional, you know. Well, that was kind of a joke, but there was a few bucks, yeah. The um, guys that were running and the roadsters then, were they all dry lakes guys, or were they... A lot of them come went from street racing to dry lakes to the tracks, yeah. And quite a bunch of them went on to Indianapolis. In those days, some of them guys did good at Indianapolis. We had several Indianapolis winners. 
boy Swikert, the Rathmans, and uh, Jack McGrath did everything but win it. Uh, a whole bunch of Manuel Ayulo and Jim Rig Rigsby. Boy, I could go on and on. A lot of them guys did real good. Yeah. How did you get involved with said sprint car racing? Did that come out of the roadsters? Yeah, I roads through the sprints. All of, uh, what year was that? Anyway, to begin with, they were all roadsters. And then a few of the sprint cars come back and uh, run with the roadsters. For several years, they ran together, sprints and roadsters. And all at once, somebody decided that uh, to make them look more professional, they were all going to be sprint cars. So there again, I don't remember the date. They told us by such and such a time, we had to either build a sprint car or at least put a tail on the roadster, which a lot of guys did. They were just the old roadsters with a, with a tail on it. And... Uh, the Roadsters ran good. Believe it or not, when they ran together, Roadsters won a lot of the races. The sprint cars didn't run off and hide in them days. And then, like I said, by a certain date, they were all sprint cars. And it uh, it changed. The CRA initials never did change. It went from the California Roadster Association to the California Racing Association. So it was still the CRA. Yeah. What did you do to make a living to support your racing well uh i had a partner or bruce robinson him and i had a shop in glendale and uh, just general repair we did a lot of hot rod work mostly just general repair anything and everything you know just a general mechanic shop yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there was an article on hot rod that had you and he's car Can yeah you tell us about that or what well, we, we, we worked together and played together both, really. We'd work all day trying to make a living, and we spent most of the night on the race cars, whether it was the roadsters or the sprint cars or whatever, and all weekend racing somewhere. And uh, we'd build our own stuff from scratch. We'd go out to an old industrial metals down there and come home with an old pickup load of tubing and metal, and, and we'd bent and cut and fit and welded everything from scratch. Yeah. What kind of engines did you use? Well, we started with a flathead Merc, Ford Merc. And then in 52, when Chrysler came out with that first Hemi, uh, we looked at those things. See, there were three sizes of those things, Dodge, DeSoto, and Chrysler. Beginning with, most guys, everybody looked at those things and saw those big heavy rocker arms and long push rods and all that kind of stuff. We said, man, those things will never work. We decided to try one. We, the Chrysler was too big and heavy and the Dodge too small, so we built up a DeSoto, the, the middle-sized one, and uh, put that thing in. The last Roadster had a DeSoto in it, and of course all the Sprint cars did. Uh, but that thing wound up working good, and boy, look what they're doing with it nowadays. Most all these modern drag and boat engines are clones of that old Chrysler, you know. Yeah. You... Uh raced a lot of guys, were they all in the same business as you, or? Well, most of them did have some, at least a mechanical background, yeah, a lot of them did have shops, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, earlier you said you swapped a lot of stuff with people like Don Blair, were there others like that? Uh, well, only when we was in trouble, or you'd break something at the track, somebody would tear up a rear end, and somebody else would, we'd just trade and swap parts, you know. With the, nowadays, if you go to the races, these guys got these big rigs, these truck and trailers. They got a shop on wheels with spare cars and enough parts to build another car, you know. 
And them days we had everything in a little pickup and a little open trailer and that was it. And uh, guys just swapped parts and helped everybody. Did you just race locally or did you go out of state? What, uh, well, I say local. It was everything from San Diego to Oakland. And there was a bunch of tracks around here, and there was San Diego and Santa Maria and Oakland, as far as north as Oakland. And once or twice a year, we'd go back to the Midwest and around Indianapolis. Within 100 miles of Indianapolis, boy, was, you could race every night. And we'd go back there and spend a week or 10 days, maybe two weeks at the most, call that our vacation. And there were Dayton, Salem, Winchester, Anderson, run all them tracks back there, you know. Of course, then we had to come home and go back to work. <laughs> Did you make any money out of it? Oh, uh, we just, it paid for itself. We made it pay for itself. Make a living? No, but it did pay. It, it might say it was a hobby that paid for itself. Yeah. You win many races then? Yeah, we did. We, twice, we come within uh, just a few points of winning the championship. We blew it both times. Uh, two different years, we went into the last race of the year leading the points by just a, two or three or four points, and both times we got beat by just a few points. So we wound up number two. We were number two twice, and that was it, you know, best we ever did. Did you do the driving, or did you have I used to. I did some, yeah, and we lost a couple of drivers, and I drove, and then all at once uh, I said the cars are almost getting better than I was, and we got tied up with old Roger McCluskey. You remember that name? He was a heck of a guy. We raced, uh, he raced here with us for about six, eight years, and then he went back east Indianapolis to stay, and he wound up doing real good. He, uh, in a way, he did some things that A.J. Foyt never did. He never won Indianapolis, but boy, he sure won other stuff and a lot of championships. He won everything but Indy, which always made him mad. Every time he'd complain about not winning Indy, I'd try to convince him he was in good company. As far as I'm concerned, there's three of the best guys that never won Indianapolis. Ted Horn, Rex Mays, no Tony Bettenhausen. There's three other guys that won everything but, because that didn't make him feel any better. <laughs> That's true. Well, what made you want to become a, a driver then? Did you want to go to Indy or? Well, yeah, I guess. I just enjoyed it. It was just fun. Just fun getting out there and tossing them things sideways and going, you know. Yeah, I just enjoyed it. Typical smart aleck kid, I guess. <laughs> yeah, with your success, did other people come to your shop and say, build me a car? Or? Yeah, but we didn't have time. Like I say, we did, a lot of times we'd build a new car every winter and sell off the old one, the one we'd ran the last year. And, uh, but that was it. As far as going and making a business out of building cars, no. Uh -uh. Uh. Yeah. How many races did you do? Oh, a year? Boy, I don't know. It used to be two or three a week from uh, February or March through November, you know. Yeah. That was all weekends then? Uh, we used to run a few Wednesdays and Thursday nights. Yeah. That was plus running our business full time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that business was basic auto repair? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. We did some custom and hot rod work, but. Uh, uh, back in them days, the big thing when Oldsmobile and uh, Cadillac first come out with their V overhead V8s in '49, 
we put a lot of them in the early Fords. And uh, nowadays you got kits, uh, adapters, you can buy everything and just bolt them up. Well, there again, in those days, nothing was available. You made everything you needed. You made your own mounts and adapters and adapted the engines, transmissions, or whatever you did it the, the hard way, which we did, which is, you know, interesting, really. When it got to the motors, did you do all your own building? Yeah, we did. Everything but the crank grinding. I had valve equipment, old bore bars, and everything else. The only thing I never had was a crank grinder. And old Clem Tebow out of C&T Automotive, uh, them and Joe Armstrong out there, one of our big racing competitors, they were into crank grinding, so they did our cranks. Yeah, yeah. Is there any um, one outstanding shop besides what you guys did that you were always competing with that were buddies with? Or? Well, Don and Clem, the C&T Automotive, those guys had a good running. Well, we used to accuse them of cheating. In those days, we were still running the flathead, and they had that Arden, the Ford, but it was an Arden. And yeah, there's a lot of guys we competed against, but they had the shop out in North Hollywood. Oh, boy, so many guys now I can't even forget, but uh, I don't know, them and Joe Armstrong, they had a couple of shops out there next door to each other. Joe did most of the cranks, and uh, Clem and Don did everything else, you know, yeah. Is there anybody that inspired you or you wanted to have drive for you that never could get or? Oh, you mean as a little kid? Yeah. Well, back in them days, of course, there was no TV yet. And the only race you could ever get once a year was Indianapolis on the radio. Because I was always glued to that radio just that one day and that was it. You know, I remember Indianapolis every year hearing about all them old guys before all the foreigners come over here and took over when it was all American. <laughs> they were still running dirt cars at Indianapolis. <laughs> Did you ever go to the Indy race? I've never been there in the end of May. I've been there a bunch of times, but I've never been there for the race. Never have. I uh, could have went with guys and uh, been on crews and teams back there, but just never made it. And I've been through there a bunch of times on trips and raced, like I say, raced all around there. We used to stay in Indianapolis, either that or Muncie, Indiana, and race from there. But uh, I've never been there for the race in May. Hmm. That seems kind of strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did, uh, since you're so into racing, did you do any boats? Or so I did fly for a long time, and I still fly every chance I get. Uh, boats, I even did race boats for a while. I kind of got into building some boat engines for other guys, and I wound up building a boat. I had an SK, a ski boat with a Hemi Chrysler in the thing back in the late 50s, early 60s. It was about a 120-mile-an-hour boat then, which I hear wouldn't be too bad nowadays even. So I raced it for a short while, but we just mostly skied with it, water skied. Going back a little bit, when you were racing, there's always rules. Did you cheat or bend, bend them to? Well, not really. It wasn't that big a deal. You know, the rules weren't that tight in those days. And uh, for one thing, nowadays you go out there, there's just one engine. Most of them, they call them Chevys. There's not a stock Chevy part on them anymore. They're all billet and from scratch, you know. But in them days, we had everything running. Uh, in the main event, uh, 15, 20 cars out there, there might be 12, 15 different engines. Everything from flathead Fords, four bangers, V8s, uh, 
Gardens. Uh, Chevys were brand new at that time, a few Chevys, and uh, boy, some old airplane engines, uh, just everything running out there, which made it more interesting, really. Nowadays, they're all, they call them cookie cutter cars and engines almost, you know. They're again, they're all homemade. Guys all built their own stuff, yeah. Now, what was the Lexington like organized, organization wise or safety wise? Well, nothing like it is nowadays. Now, I say nowadays, I haven't been up there in a couple of years now. But uh, the surface probably wasn't as tore up as it is nowadays. But uh, we used to take off, and the biggest thing up there that, that they, was not the course. You know where you know where the course was. It was out where it was all you know clear. But guys would take off down around the edge of the lake and run into these tule bushes and that kind of stuff, and that crashed a lot of guys. A lot of guys got killed just up there, just fooling around more more so than running the real the regular course. And we used to unofficially drag race up there too instead of two abreast, uh, even though there's a lot of room. We'd wind up with five, eight, or ten abreast with everybody fishtailing and skating around without any bang wheels. And I know a couple of times I hopped clear over another car, but uh, luckily I always come down on four wheels, but some other guys didn't, and uh, which was our own fault, you know. <laughs> That's true. What did you wear in the way of safety equipment? One little old belt and uh, a little old light cheap, cheap helmet years ago, which was, if it got hit, they broke. I can remember racing with no belt and no helmet. <laughs> Hard head, I guess. How can you explain why L.A. was the center of the hot rod experience? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. They say the weather's got a lot to do with it. Some places back east, they've only got a few months in the summer, and the rest of the time they're snowed or iced in. Uh, and there are no dry lakes back there either. And uh, I don't know, but it did start here and spread from here. Nowadays, it's all over the country, even all over the world, I guess, almost. But uh, <clears throat> I don't know, it used to be 99% everything was right here. Yeah. Well, years ago, they're getting, uh, right after the war, the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, it seemed like half the guys at Indianapolis were ex-roadster guys out of L.A. Uh, I don't know, just the way it was. That's where they came from nowadays. I'd like to see it go back to that, but <laughs> you know what it is nowadays. <clears throat> how, or walk us through how you built the car. It's like you said, you built it at home. Well, not some, but mostly down to our shop in Glendale. We rented a shop. We had, we never did own a shop. We just rented and leased. Uh, one corner of our shop was just a race shop, you know, which we did nights and weekends. You know, uh, we just went out and bought material and uh, started bending and cutting and fitting. And there were no tube benders in those days either. We used to bend take the torch and the tubing out and bend them around a telephone pole out in front of the shop. Same with hoods and belly pans. They got bent and formed around a telephone pole. Old aluminum before fiberglass. And uh, just the way everybody did it in them days, you know. Yeah. No formal design, it was just cut and fit? If there was any, no, no blueprint, yeah, no blueprints. Might have been a few chalk marks on the floor. <laughs> 
Why do you nothing on paper? What I understand is you guys did these amazing things. What, how come you had such a bad reputation? Uh, and who did you have a bad reputation from? I don't know. That was somebody just thought we were wasting our time. And it was pretty dangerous in them, guys, them days. A lot of guys did get killed. We lost a lot of guys. And uh, because of that, everybody thought I was bad news. They even tried to outlaw it for a while. They were going to outlaw racing and all kinds of stuff different times over the years. That uh, I don't know, we were, we were just bad guys wasting our time, as far as they were concerned. But you know, when the war come along, some of the race guys, man, I'll tell you what, they were the best guys in the service. I'll say it more than once. Uh, some of the old ex-racers uh, helped win that. I'm talking about World War II, not these things since, you know, man. Those guys helped us win the war. <laughs> in, in what way? I mean, just give me examples. I know that, I think that's an important point you'll make, because the, the thing about hot rods, they're so innovative, you know? Yeah, just uh, skills that you learn just from doing. There wasn't any high-tech uh, formal trade schools or anything in those days yet. You guys just learned from doing. You just picked up, for example, I first welded years ago. I just picked up a torch and burned a bunch of holes I learned how to do it. You know, yeah. Yeah. Talking about that, when you guys were in high school and stuff, were there any places you always went to hang out or, you know, Yeah, there's a... Or? Well, that was even before Bob's. Uh, there's a old drive-in in Glendale before Bob's, I think Parker's. And there's a G&L drive-in over in Pasadena just a few drive-ins we used to meet at, and then uh, we'd take off and do a little racing between 12 and 2 o'clock in the morning. Like I say, you never did nothing illegal, but... Uh, <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Did clubs face off against each other? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you one thing, another thing, another buddy and I did of mine years ago, a guy named Jim Ford. Uh, he had a Model A, an Aviate, and I had my 32. And uh, I had the engine out of my 32. It was just sitting home with the engine out all apart. And I could name some guys, but some good guys over in Pasadena. Jack McGrath was one of them. We beat a couple of them guys over there one night. And uh, this was Ford's idea. I didn't know what he was talking about. I was riding with him that night because my car was sitting at home all apart. He said, we got another car at home that can beat you guys, too. Those guys, they, they'd never been beat, they, or at least for so long. They thought they were unbeatable. Ah, there's not another car around. And uh, we'll see you in a couple hours. Believe it or not, we went home, pulled the engine out of his Aviate, and stuffed it in my 32 in about an hour. We were back over there in a couple hours, and they didn't know this till later. They had trouble believing it. The same engine in a different car. And we beat them twice that night. <laughs> same night, the same engine in two different cars. Did you go to different parts of the city that you was off clubs? Or? Yeah, we used to go down to Long Beach and around Rosemead down there, way down to Rosemead. Uh, Glen Oaks right out here and Foothill Boulevard in Pasadena. And uh, boy, there used to be a place out and way out in Puente, which was way out in the Thule's Inn in the middle of no place. Now it's solid houses, I guess. Um, back in them days, half this place was still almost vacant, you know. No signals. We didn't have to worry about signals, very little traffic. 
No freeways yet, all on back roads. <laughs> if I wanted to, in, if I wanted to in 1945 build a hot rod, I mean, how much would it cost me to go? Where did you get the parts from? Did you, and how much would it cost? And, and you know, did you go to speed shops to get stuff? And well, there was only one or two speed shops around at that time. There weren't a lot of them, and uh, very little stuff you could buy. Most of your stuff was homemade. The guys did their own thing from scratch, really. You could buy just a few of the early heads and manifolds, and uh, some real early cams. Now, a couple of guys that helped us a lot years ago, called them sponsors, nothing like nowadays. The sponsor nowadays is big bucks, is old Howard Johansson, Howard Cams, a cam grinder. We used to run his cams before he'd sold them in production, you know, just experiment. We'd experiment with them in our race cars. And the same with Phil Wyand. Uh, we used to run his heads and manifolds. And that was the extent of our sponsorship. Once in a while, somebody might give us a tire or a few gallons of fuel, but no no big bucks, no money. But we did run their stuff, uh, kind of tested it for them before they sold the stuff in production. They were the guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it worked on our race car, they wound up selling it. <laughs> I've got a few, got a few of them hanging on the wall over here. Yeah, were there any tricks that you guys developed that went to other racers or? Well, everybody kind of horse traded stuff. In those days, there was no big secrets, and uh, we didn't care. We, you know, we'd tell the other guys what we were doing. They knew it anyway. All they do is come over and look. Nothing covered up or hid away in the corner of a shop in them days like there is now and worked both ways we just you know a lot of cars even though they were different because they were all homemade uh, they weren't factory or production built like nowadays on a production line almost uh, they were still similar and a lot of stuff was you know we horse traded stuff nobody cared all buddy buddy deal in them days no big secrets did you guys get into any exotic fuels or any of that? Well, it was straight alcohol for years. Then uh, we got into the first little, I think it was old Vic Edelbrock that claimed, tried nitromethane to begin with. We used to think 5, 10% was a lot. Well, shoot, nowadays they're running 110%. But uh, we experimented with that a little bit, but uh, mostly just straight alcohol, yeah. Other than you could get away with nitro, uh, well, it's the drags or dry lakes, maybe, you know, just one quick shot. But the racetracks, you stop and think about it, uh, just, a, just a 30, 40 lap race is more miles than, you know, the drag racer is going to run all year. <laughs> the, the nitro didn't work too good in them days and those things, yeah. What, um, what influence did Hot Runners have in Detroit? Can you give me some examples? Oh, I don't know whether Detroit, how much, or if they did, they didn't want to admit it, but we had some guys that uh, that did go to work for GM and Ford both uh, that had a lot of hot rod experience. Uh, I'm trying to think of the names now. Most of them guys are long gone. But some guys did, uh, they, they did work with Detroit and, and help with a bunch of ideas, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, did, did the guys in Detroit ever come down and see what you were doing, you know, how you were... They would show up at the first few hot rod shows years ago, uh, which started after the war. 
Again, I'm talking about World War II. And uh, they'd come down and nose around and look around out of curiosity. Nobody knew what they were doing and nobody thought anything about it, you know. But they were really curious and uh, they wanted to see what was going on out here in California. <laughs> yeah, you had one tromper that went on to fame, so to speak, at Detroit or for GM, and that was Larry Shinoda. Yeah, he did. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was a heck of an artist and a designer. And uh, he had a couple nice hot rods years ago. I drove one or two of them for him. He had a nice AV8. And uh, he went to art school and uh, turned into be a heck of a... He designed a lot of stuff. He was in on the first Mustang that the boss he named. The boss Mustang was his deal. And uh, I'm thinking he had something to do with the Corvette, too. He was tied up with Ford and GM both for a while. Who? Larry Shinoda. Yeah. And... Uh, He did all the lettering and uh, the fancy paint work on our race cars for years. Another guy painted them all. Uh, most of them were white, whatever, and then he did all the trim on them. He did lettered and numbered those things for us just for kicks. He just, you know, everybody just did. We didn't pay nobody nothing in them days. Nobody expected to get paid. Everybody just did it. Yeah, you were talking earlier about how uh, when you go to the dry lakes, you went in or under different people's names. Tell us a little bit about... Well, that wasn't on purpose. Nobody trying to hide anything, but we were doing so much racing, different kind of stuff, running everything. Instead of sticking to just dry lakes or just drags or just CRA race cars or whatever, we was running everything. And half the time, we didn't know where we were going to be. We decided to go racing. We weren't entered. We'd go anyway. And somebody else was entered that didn't show up. We'd use their name. Nobody cared. <laughs> That's how informal. Everybody knew it, but nobody cared. Nowadays, you probably couldn't even do that for rules and laws and lawyers, but them days, nobody cared, you know. Did anybody use fake names or fake their IDs? I don't think so. I had to do a little fibbing years ago, because in them days, you're supposed to have been 21 to race. Well, and they lowered it to 18, and now it's 16, or even less. But uh, I was racing at 15. <laughs> you ever scare yourself good? Uh, I probably didn't have sense enough to get scared. <laughs> you back up and do it again. <clears throat> it must have been amazing as a little kid to go to, did you say Balboa, or what, to go to the circle track? Yeah. I mean, what was it like? I just a picture guys with top hats and, I don't know, <laughs> what was the whole... Uh, top hats? Well, I don't know, you know, it was sort of, I don't know. You mean the old crude helmets? Yeah. Well, they weren't, uh, well, they were so flimsy in them days that you hit them, they'd break, so they, I don't know what good they were, but we wore them, you know, yeah. I ran across an old one here a while back, and I gave it to Richard, the Trompers are starting up a historical archive thing. Uh, He's got, got an old hat down there that I run across and give him years ago. It's half rotten now, but he's got it. Yeah. Which form of racing that you've been involved with was the most fun? Well, I still like the sprint car, sprints and midgets. I really do. I'm not knocking what the guys, the drag racers nowadays or something else, what them guys do uh, faster going in just a few seconds. But... Uh, 
it's still just a straight line thing, you know. And uh, I don't know, I just like that. You say circle track, it kind of sounds like, duh, these guys think, yeah, it's a bunch of wimps or something. But I'll tell you what, it's just tough to beat, especially on a dirt track. Yeah, still the best racing. One of the other things I want to know is, was there a difference between the custom car guys and the hot rod guys in the 40s and 50s? I mean, what was the... Yeah, big deal. The custom car guys didn't—they uh, didn't race at all in them days. They just uh, built them and polished them and stood around and looked at them. They're lucky they just drove and putted around town a little bit. They didn't do any racing. It's a different thing altogether. Yeah. Were they looked down upon by you, or? I don't oh know. no, I wouldn't say that so much. It's just that uh, we d didn't really have that much to do with each other. They weren't even hopping up engines in those days. They just clean up the stock engines and never lifted the hoods, you know. Uh, what those guys did was some of the sheet metal for chopping and channeling and all that custom. Well, that's something else again, you know. I'm not knocking it. That's a lot of work. You look at a lot of these cars, whether you like them or not, some of this custom stuff nowadays, you got to realize the, the work and the ingenuity that went into those things, you know. It's, it, it, it's another, another thing, you know. It looks like in your shop here, you can build almost anything. Well, Have you? well, I'm still doing my own thing the old-fashioned way, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Uh, you don't see any computers in here, no modern machinery. <laughs> A lot of this stuff, I'll tell you what, uh, stuff that I started collecting when I was 10, 12 years old, and believe it or not, a lot of these tools I got from my dad that he had before World War One. There's some tools in here that I'm going on close to 100 years old now. <laughs> You're a Ford man. Is there any particular reason behind that? I really don't know why. It's funny. I'm so bad I get accused of being prejudiced, and that's all right. I don't care. One of my things is teasing the Chevy guys, and I know it's a big thing. But really, years ago, uh, well, it was 99% Ford. And uh, you tell these modern guys that, that these kids, all they know is Chevy. Shoot, when I first started hanging around, fooling around with this stuff years ago, you never heard of a Chevy. There wasn't no Chevy. It was 99% Ford. And I just stuck with them. <laughs> well, one of the things that interested me, and maybe you, know, you can comment on this, is that I think the, the aerospace industry that grew up after the war was you know, was influenced not only by hot rodders, but but um, a lot of the stuff that we saw that came out of there, like mm -hmm. aerodynamics, influenced hot rodding. And maybe you could just tell me a bit about that and how that evolved, and if that's a fair assessment. Well, there's a lot of hot rodders who wound up with good jobs as engineers, and not only mechanics, but engineers and designers in, in the aircraft industry, too. Uh, like I said a while ago, them guys did a heck of a job back during the war. It was just something that the guys are just used to doing things and using their own imagination and ingenuity. There again, that was the old-fashioned way years ago, and now they punch everything out on a computer, I guess. I'm no computer guy. But uh, in those days, it was all seat of the pants. You know what I mean? The guys just, just did it. Yeah. And uh, the old hot rodders, uh, the, especially the few that for one reason or another happened to be 4F, couldn't get in the service, they wound up in the aircraft industry. And those guys did a heck of a job. 
like right out here at Lockheed, I remember O'Kelly Johnson and his so-called skunk works. Half of them guys were ex-hot rodders. They were racers of one kind or another. Yeah. Making it up on the fly. Yeah. Hey, who do you think was the best mechanic to come out of that? Oh, boy. Or was there one? Well, probably the most famous car builder was old A.J. Watson. Yeah. And he's still building cars back there. Supposed to be retired, well, that's a joke. As uh, far as engine goes, well, way back when it was a professional thing, but old Fred Offenhauser and uh, the Myers brothers, all those guys, uh, Travers and Coons, and of course the local guys too, like uh, Eskandarian, and I mentioned Howard Johansson, and uh, Al Barnes, who's gone now, but his kids are still making dry sump oil systems out here, and uh, boy, just so many guys that, uh, more than just plain mechanics, they, they did uh, stuff from scratch, you know what I mean? They went further. I think it's hard to explain. You know. That's cool. How many cars did you actually end up building in here? Oh boy, I don't even know. For about 15, 18 years, we'd build at least one a year and sometimes two or three, you know, if we'd crash one, sometimes if it wasn't repairable, we'd build another one real quick. I uh, wouldn't even know. Wow, that's race car. Did you build a lot of street rods or? Well, rods? not so many. I had that 32 Roadster that I had for years. And like a jerk, I sold it. Uh, the only reason I sold it was I could use the money to buy more tools and parts and equipment. Uh, I raced a bunch of other cars. I drove for some other guys, uh, but uh, most of the cars that we, except for the thirty-two Roadster, they were all track cars and sprint cars. Yeah, never had my own midget, but I helped with some other guys. I did race with midgets with other guys' cars. You know, yeah. That's cool. And other things. What's the fastest you ever ran at El Mirage? Well, the El Mirage, I know Bonneville one year with my 32, we ran 164 one way, I think, and averaged 158. And from what I've heard to this date, and really a stock-bodied 32 Roadster with a flathead in it, they say the claim a flathead's never gone that fast yet in a stock-bodied car. But you can't compare what they're doing nowadays with that because they've changed the rules so much. That's true. Yeah, you're allowed to do things to the chassis, which we couldn't do. I think you can pull the engine back a certain percent of the wheelbase or something, can't you? We couldn't. If They, they measured that sucker. If that thing had moved a quarter of an inch, it threw you in the modified class. And on and on. Uh, but uh, What was Bonneville like? When was the first time you went? I was at the first one in uh, 49. And who else was there? I mean, it must have been an amazing... Oh, yeah, let's see, boy. See, I just got out of the service, and I didn't have my own car yet. I didn't run a car that year. I wound up driving a couple other for other guys. I didn't get back up there till well, 50, 51 with my own car, because... I just got discharged and I was on my way home. I stopped by Bonneville. I just had to... <laughs> uh, oh boy. Well, 
Well, Howard Johansson was up there, and Phil Wyand had a crew. I think uh, Clem Tebow was up there. He had a 32 Roadster also, besides his track car, like we did. And uh, I don't know, boy. Esky was up there, Eskandarian, and all them guys, you know. Yeah. When you went back in 5051, what was it like to drive from Los Angeles to Windup? We used to make it in 12 hours, that's all I know. We'd leave here at 7 o'clock in the afternoon. I was towing on the ground with an old tow bar, and uh, we didn't even have trailers yet. And uh, towing with a 34 or 37 pickup or something. And uh, we used to leave her at 7 o'clock at night and get there about 7 o'clock in the morning if we drove almost straight through. Except for gas and a sandwich, cheeseburger and a malt. Any uh, adventures, bone tires, things like that? Yeah, one time. Uh, yeah, that was before, there again, that was before freeways on the old roads. Some guy cut us off up there somewhere and uh, to avoid hitting this guy, uh, we... Anyway, in missing him, we jackknifed the, those tow bars were a little tricky. And we went, wound up running off the road and drug my 32 Roadster through a ditch up there. Uh, hard enough, it hit sideways hard enough to bend to her end. And, uh, man, we got the thing drug out of there and looked at it, no way would that thing roll on the ground, you know. And we just sat there and waited for somebody to come along. There, you know, Willie Davis come along, he had his on a trailer, one of the first trailers. So we pulled his off the trailer, put the tow, my tow bar on his, and um, I bent 32 on his trailer, and we went on up there that way. Well, we, once we got there, we spent a day and a night working on that thing. It got us straightened up, and we were able to run. But uh, we just traded tow bar for trailer when it went on up there. <laughs> I, I know Bonneville's still like that, but we're all the early forms of racing, something happened, your competitor, would lend you the parts? Yeah, yeah. If, if you think it would fit, you know, if we had it or they had it, it was yours, yeah. With no big secrets or in them days, nobody expected anything. Yeah. I can assume you're still interested in racing today? Well, yeah. I'm still at the, out here. The closest dirt track now is Paris. I'm there almost every Saturday night from February through November. And, uh, yeah, I still like the sprint cars and midgets, yeah. Irwindale's closer out here, but it's paved. We tell them pavement, what pavement's for, they say pavement's for driving on between dirt tracks. <laughs> they don't like to hear that, but... <laughs> Do you still get involved in cars? Well, not formally. Once in a while I'll go down early and just fool around. I say help some guys, mostly fool around. But I spent so many years in the pits where you really you can't see, you really can't see the races down there. You know it's, it's tough to see, so I go up in the grandstands anymore before they start racing. Just another spectator. What would you like to be remembered for in your contribution to the motorsports? Well, I don't think I ever contributed nothing. I just uh, it was just a hobby, just interesting. Yeah, I've had more people ask me. I don't know the first thing about racing you mentioned. I'm going, boy, ain't that exciting? I said, nah, to me it's never been exciting. It's just interesting. It's just doing something. To me it's putting this together with these and doing something. <laughs> I get in trouble for 
making fun of these stick and ball guys now and then. I just, uh, they don't know the difference. You know what I mean? They never built anything or rebuilt or had to fix a crashed car. Or, you know, they go out and some kid hands them a ball and a bat and that's it. You know, big difference. <laughs> they don't like to hear that either, but what do I care? You guys are going to censor all this, I hope. More gleeful than the swear words are. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Barry. Thanks, Don. And I know you've told me this before. You you went to you went to Gilmore. Uh, you went to the very first and the very last race. Yeah, it opened Gilmore. in '33. Yeah. '34 was the first so-called Turkey Night race, which they're still doing. You know, mm -hmm. of course, not there anymore. It's gone from track to track, but at least they're still doing it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So that would have been the first time you saw race cars, or cars racing in any way. Would been going to these first yeah, races yeah. with a well, I was just a little kid, yeah. With a neighbor that, yeah. that took you. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So did you go from the Model T to a 32 3 window coupe? Yeah, I did. I skipped the Model A. Yeah. And then it soon turned into a roadster. Oh, you cut it? No, I, another guy in that neighborhood down there had a roadster, older guy, and he was getting tired of the open car. And he'd been by our house a few times, my folks' house. <clears throat> he saw my three-window coupe, and he wanted to trade cars. Well, the more he looked at mine, the less he liked about it, because stuff I'd done to the chassis and had it half hopped up and modified, even in them days. He didn't want to trade cars, so we'd, believe it or not, we finally traded bodies. We both unbolted our bodies and just traded bodies. No kidding. Yeah, that's the way I got my first roadster. <laughs> Then I'll he, be damned. He had, he had him a car with a roof over his head. That's what he wanted. And that's the same car that I did race at El Mirage and Bonneville and old Rosemont or Muroc and all them years ago, you know. So you like, had that car a long time. Yeah, and like a jerk, I finally sold it years ago. I should have kept it, but I sold it. <laughs> hmm. Well, you're building another one now, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And were you running, in your car, were you running the original 32? V8 or had you? No, about that time I think it was a 34 or 36. Close. Yeah. 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 So that was your high school car then? Yeah, just my daily transportation for years. Do you know when the first Lakes Meet was that you took your 32 up and ran it at? Well, <clears throat> we weren't supposed to, but we ran a few real early in the war, during the war. You know, supposedly racing stopped, it, it quit. There was no real organized racing during the war. Yeah. Everybody was busy and the guys that were old enough were in the service, most of them are gone, and I was later on. And uh, everything was rationed, gas and steel and everything was scarce because everything was going to the military, the war effort, you know. But we did what we could on the side. <laughs> so these were un unsanctioned yeah yeah they were yeah just kind of just word of mouth just hey we're yeah. all going to the lake yeah lake bed on you know. yeah where did people bring timing equipment uh yeah just amateur stuff mainly just push button stopwatches in your hand then hmm. Otto Crocker got into it was his first his first stuff was real crude too but it worked and uh Went from there, finally got refined, I guess, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So your first trip to the lake, to the lakes, would have been 
right about when the war started then. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. And was your, were you still running a, a 21 stud flathead at that point? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. 34, 35, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what you'd done to the engine, if anything? Boy, just in those days you milled the heads and I remember the first manifold I ever even had. I think it was an old Thixton, probably. Mm -hmm. I got a couple of in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, nobody was doing much in them days. You couldn't even get a reground cam. Believe it or not, some of the first cams were done by hand and a vice and a file. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you imagine how high tech they were. Man, oh man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was thinking that Ed Winfield was regrinding cams for guys. Yeah, but strictly for indie stuff, hmm. and uh, sprint cars and that kind of stuff. Yeah, he had a reputation for not really liking hot rodders. Yeah. Did you ever have but, any contact with him, or well, did you ever meet him or anything? I knew old Bud Winfield, his brother. You pretty, did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were good guys. In fact, they had a lot to do with the old Novi's. And, uh, well, you talk about Ed not liking Hot Rod. Really, that's what he was to begin with, hopped up Model T's. Like if I remember right, Winfield had a 40 Ford Coupe all hopped up. And Kong managed to get it. He had, had that car, too. Whatever happened to it, I don't know. But uh, Kong, after Winfield sold out and moved out, Kong had his 40 Ford Coupe, too which was all hopped up. And it was Ed's old car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You finished high school and then went into the service? Yeah, in them days, if you weren't 4F, you got drafted right into the service, yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what, what was your, what's your history with, the, with your service? Well, like in airplanes, I went uh, <laughs> the Air Force, before it was the Air Force, it was the old Army Air Corps. And I did, I wound up in a P-51 outfit. And I was a mechanic, crew chief, flight chief. And uh, like I say, officially I wasn't a pilot. I couldn't fly on account of my eyes. But uh, rebuilding, overhauling those things, luckily I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I got, I test-hopped a lot of the ones that we rebuilt. The joke was if we screwed them up, They'd bite me or a couple other guys, us, instead of the real pilots, you know. So we st we test hopped them. Uh, so we I did that every chance I got. I was up there all I could. <laughs> yeah, when you s explain what that means, test hopping the plane. Well, just test pilots, test flying. After you, anything but anything that's not just real minor, they always test flew them. We were supposed to stay within sight of the field, just circle the field. Well, I never did anything I wasn't supposed to, you understand, but mm -hmm. we, we'd get a little farther and farther, and two or three of us would get out there and fool around. Yeah. In, in P-51s? Yeah, yeah. And this is during the war? Mm-hmm. And where were you stationed doing that? Well, several places here in the country, and then uh, tail end of the war, Way up in the northeast, we call it over the hump in Alaska up there. I don't know whether it's still legal anymore or not, but so long ago, they had us uh, spying on the communist Russians up there at that time, flying over the hump. 
Hmm. And uh, like I say, I never flew in combat because I'm no hero because officially I wasn't even a pilot. But uh, they had our outfit up there. Up there in all kinds of weather, we didn't even have hangars. It was just a dirt strip up there. And we did it all outdoors. I remember stuff was so cold, the parts and tools would freeze to your fingers. On the other hand, down in some of the deserts, other places, it was so hot they'd blister your fingers. And one of my thing is these modern guys that <clears throat> they'd never been any place. If it's if it's hot, it's air conditioned. If it's cold, it's heated, and they complain about the weather. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Bunch of wimps. <laughs> All told, how long did you serve? Just uh, five years. So all through the war and right out the end of it. Yeah, I thought I was going to stay and make a career out of it. I'd re up for two more years, I'd three to begin with, and then two more. The only reason I got out was I decided I wanted to go racing. I was going to stay and make a career out of it. I decided I wanted to go racing, so then I got out. You know, I'd like to jump back and talk a little bit more about this test-hopping planes. Because that's... Uh, to well, a, guy, a, lot of, a lot of guys did it. But, sure. Yeah, yeah. But to a guy my age who loves those planes so much... You go to air shows? I've been to a couple, but I tell you, that's one of the things I really look forward to no more. out yeah. here. Because yeah. I know you guys have a lot of them out here. There really is, good yeah. ones. Um, but I, I went to a few in, in the Midwest, but it was, you know, it's rare to see those old warbirds flying or the fighters, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, that had to be quite a thrill to a kid interested in hot rods and race cars to get to play with that technology and, well, and, and run a P-51 and fly it. I mean, yeah. even if you were, I mean, you were trained enough to take off and land it, well, yeah, with it. And, yeah and tool around and... Well, I'd flown a so-called private pilot before I ever went in. Of course, then I managed to learn, learn. that's a debatable, but a little more, you know, yeah, mm. yeah. What, do, what are your memories of flying those P-51s? What did those feel like? I thought they were fun. It's just like the old races. People had never been to a race, they used to, they used to yeah, boy, I bet that was exciting. Well, to me, that stuff was never exciting. It was just interesting. I was always interested in that stuff. I didn't worry about the excitement. I was just interested. They must have been an impressive machine, though, to, to operate. Well, they were. There's still more P-51s flying today than there is any other World War II airplane. And uh, you know where a lot of them wound up? They got hopped up just like old Ford hot rods and they're racing them. Mm -hmm. You ever go to the air races? That's something I've never done. Boy, you should. Most of them are old hopped up modified P-51s. They must have, that must have just been a, like going to some kind of master class in engine building and... We did a lot of schooling, we did, yeah. 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 I mean, after building those engines, mm -hmm. gosh, a, a flathead Ford must have seemed like <laughs> child's play in a way. On the other hand, they're real similar, really. Of course, that was one of the last hot uh, internal combustion engines, you know, a prop job. Mm -hmm. Right after that, they went into the first jets. And uh, about the time I got out, got discharged, the jets were just coming around. 
you yeah. know. So really, I was, I was the last of the uh, prop jobs and the first of the jets, you know. Yeah. Speaking of. That's, it's, it's, that's a chopper, I can tell. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I was in on them, too, believe it or not, years ago. Where, where was I at? Some place in Kansas, I think. When those things were brand new, they were still experimental. And they were so bad for a while. Boy, you can't believe how many the, those things they crashed for first couple to three years and how many guys they killed. They were so bad, we figured they'd soon forget about them and give up on them. Hmm. Well, they didn't. And look what they've made out of them. Look what they're doing with them now. Yeah. But they were so bad to begin with, we figured they'd give up on them. <laughs> and how was it that you were around that? I just happened to be the right time, the right place. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting part of the old Army Air Corps. So what year was it that you uh, got out of the service? Fifty... Well, I guess 50, I guess, yeah. Well, 49, 49. Yeah, it was 49. I should remember why, because I just got out, and I knew the first Bonneville meet was coming up. The first Bonneville meet was in 49. And I got discharged on, I think, Turner Field, Albany, Georgia, back in the States. And I bought me an old pickup. And I left there one afternoon. I knew some guys who were racing around Indianapolis at that time, like old Jack McGrath and Manuel Ayulo and a bunch of them guys. I drove straight through to Indianapolis and got up there and got tied up with them guys and spent a week or two with them, a couple of weeks, I guess, going, you know, racing their sprints and midgets all over the Midwest. And I knew Bonneville was coming up and I headed west. I kind of went from racetrack to racetrack and I got to Bonneville when it opened in 49. I spent the week there, then I headed on home finally, but I spent the first, I didn't have my own car running, I fooled around with some other guys, but I was there <laughs> on the way home from the service. Yeah. Yeah. So were you, were you uh, kind of paying your way by wrenching on cars from track to track and all that? or were you Actually, just... no money. I, I'd, I'd saved a few bucks in the service. And I had enough money, gas money and food money, and I don't even remember motel it. I got tired of slipping back on my old pickup. Hmm. <laughs> a few hours and went on, you know. So how long did this last that you took this kind of road trip? Oh, boy. Going from track to track. Probably about a month or close to it, you know. Because mm. I spent a week or two in, in, all around Indianapolis. Then I headed west and uh, another week at Bonneville. Then I knew some guys living in Northern California. I went up there, spent a day or two with them, and finally headed home. All with your, with your pickup? Yeah, sure. What was the truck again? I think it was a 46, 46 Ford. I'm a Ford guy. Yeah. My story is, I tried it in a Chevy, I'd have never got there. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what the Chevy guys tell me. <laughs> Do you remember any of the tracks you hit going as you went west? Oh boy, well, back there it was, uh, of course, Winchester, DeCoins, Springfield, Illinois, uh, all over. Here, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Pennsylvania, Iowa, all over the Midwest, you know. They had a race back there every night at that time. 
you want to, you could race five, six, seven nights a week. Like I told people this, they don't even believe it. A couple times a year, I ran nine, nine races in one week. Guys look at you, say, how'd they do that? Well, Memorial Day weekend, and what, what's the other big holiday? Uh, those weekends, a lot of times they'd run two races, uh, afternoon and night, every night, plus a couple afternoon races. I made eight or nine races a week. Man, oh man. Nowadays they, they holler about a few, you know. <laughs> yeah. The guys did it too. And towing with old-fashioned old pickups with open trailers. No fancy haulers. So when you finally got back to California, what was, what was the first thing you remember doing? Pulling my 32 out of my folks' garage and getting it going. <laughs> it, 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 it sat there all the time I was gone. Nice that they kept it. Oh yeah, they did that. My dad thought of that. My mom didn't. She didn't know what was in the garage. Hmm. <laughs> the few things she threw away was out of the house. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. That had to be a nice thing to come home to. Yeah. Didn't take me long to get it going. Had your dad run it at all, or no, had it just been uh, sitting there? Been sitting there all that time. Man, that's a long time for it to just sit yeah. dormant. Well, I got it going. Back in them days, the gas didn't go to pot like it does now, mm -hmm. <laughs> and other things. Um, so what did you, what you start doing with the, with your roadster? Did you get right at it and get to the lakes and start? Yeah, running? I got the lakes, and there again we did some drag racing, and about that time the first legal organized drag race come up, which was out at the old Blimp bases in Santa Ana, and. Uh, Believe it or not, I won that thing. <laughs> no kidding. But that's a, it was amateur in those days, nothing like it is now, you know. Everybody drove out there and you pulled that windshield and the headlights off of them and you raced it. If you didn't blow it up, you put the stuff back on, you drove it home. If you did, one of your buddies would tow you home with a rope. <laughs> do you, so what did you do to the Roadster when you got home mechanically? Well, I'd just get it going for a while. Yeah. Of course, before long, I was building a better engine. It was all flathead stuff at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you came back from the war, it must have... What did you think about uh, all the developments that had happened, speed equipment that was available? and uh, Had you been keeping, an, I, keeping I, up heard, on that? I'd heard about it, tried to, but I didn't... You know, there's stuff going on that I hadn't kept up with, but yeah, a lot of changes. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Things just, just starting to get... Call it high tech or whatever. We were low tech. Hmm. Yeah. What? What? Um, I mean, what did it kind of look like when you got back to California after being gone for so long? Was it Was it different at all? Not too much yet. Uh, not really. Well, as far as the whole area goes, that's about the time they were building freeways. Up to that time, we had no freeways. And uh, everything just on city streets. Mm -hmm. But it, did it appear to you that Hot Rod had grown quite a bit? Well, yeah. And uh, a lot of the guys, of course, almost all of the old Hot Rodders were in the service. And of course, when they come home, actually, they did. Like me too, they learned a lot in the service, the guys that uh, were especially in the Air Force and the Navy too, I guess, some of them. And uh, 
See, I'd have been drafted if I hadn't have joined up, but I figured I didn't, <clears throat> didn't want to do a bunch of years in the foxhole. So I thought, well, I'd join the old Army Air Corps so I could fool around with airplanes, and I lucked out and did. Yeah, I, I imagine uh, that was quite a, a nice thing when you heard, got that news. Yeah. See, when I went in, I didn't know. For all I knew, I'd have done several years of nothing but KP, but I lucked out. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> Funny thing, in the Air Force, the guys I got tied up with to begin with, the other guys that were in the same outfit, a good percentage of those guys, they'd never had a wrench in their hands. They'd never, you know, tightened or unbolted anything. No kidding. They really had to learn from scratch. Well, I'd been doing things since I was yay high, so it wasn't nothing new to me. In fact, the big thing on them airplanes was torque, if you know what I mean. And uh, we used to have a thing, especially spark plugs in those old Allison engines. And uh, one day we were fooling around, they were practicing torquing with a torque wrench. And I said, I bet I can do better than you guys without a torque wrench. <laughs> they didn't really believe me. And uh, I did. I, but just, just by feel, with an old, just a plain old ratchet, I was with a couple three pounds. Of course, I'd been doing that stuff since I was yay high, you know. Yeah, you know. yeah. So I know you went to the first Bonneville mm -hmm. in 49. When was the next time you made it back to? For some reason, I skipped 50, but 51? Mm -hmm. All up through the 60s, I ran all in, yeah, yeah. So 51, you went back with your car and ran? Yeah, did, yeah, yeah. And I drove some other guys' cars, too. I was dumb enough, I guess. I had a reputation of squeezing a little more speed out of a lot of those things. Guy said, there, you try it. <laughs> I didn't turn anybody down. <laughs> what, what uh, do you remember what you ran with your Roadster in 51? No, I really don't. Uh, year to year, I really don't. Uh, yeah. Do you remember what the other cars might have been that you? Well, one of them was Earl Evans' belly tank that had a flathead in it, and uh, Howard Johansson. I only ever saw a picture of it. He built a twin belly tank. Yeah. Uh, I drove that thing a few times, and. Uh, Was it, uh, what's the guy, another guy at Ground Cams. He had a nice roadster. I drove it a few times. I don't know, I just grabbed climbing anything they'd let me. Hmm. I was just having fun. <laughs> what's the fastest you ever went on the lakes? Well, like I say, I, I did break 200 a couple times, but I never able to average that. I, I ran it one way a few times, but I never averaged that. So officially, I'm not in the 200 club. What, what did you crack 200 in? What kind of car? Jeez, I don't even remember now. Probably one of the belly tanks. Break 200 a couple times, but I never able to average that. I, I ran it one way a few times, but I never averaged that. So officially, I'm not in the 200 club. Hmm. What What did you crack 200 in? What kind of car? Jeez, I don't even remember now. Probably one of the belly tanks. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're credited with being the first guy to push a high boy 32 Roadster through at over 150. Is that correct? I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm trying to remember. 
who else had good running roadsters at that? There was a lot of them around. There really was, yeah. What's the name? Likes and Meeks? Those two two guys that work for Edelbrock. They had yeah, a real Bill good Bill Likes road. and uh, yeah, Bobby Meeks. Yeah. Those guys, we were doing this. And old C&T Automotive, too, hmm. down in North Hollywood. You know, their shop was not far from Tommy's place down there on Lancashire. And... Uh, those guys had some good, they, they were the first guys to make something out of an Arden. They ran that Arden, and they were hard to beat, I'll tell you, yeah. You did all your own engine building yeah, and all that? Yeah, every bit of it, yeah, except the balancing, yeah. Hmm. There's a guy that had a little shop between OC and, uh, behind OC&T Automotive that did balancing years ago. He balanced the stuff and we did everything else. Did all our own boring, all our own valve machine, valve work. You name it. Well, yeah. another guy, he ground the cranks, too. He ground the cranks and he balanced them. Except for that, we did everything. Hmm. Yeah. Ported, relieved them. Hmm. And were you driving the track roadster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the early sprint cars, too. And about that time, well, I had to admit the cars were getting better than I was. And we got tied up with Roger McCluskey, and he did a heck of a job. Hmm. Of course, you know what he, uh, you know what he wound up doing? Yep. Man, he won everything but Indianapolis, really. He always had bad luck there. He'd come close a few times, but something always happened the last few laps, put him out of it. Hmm. Yeah, but he won everything else when it come to midgets and sprints and everything else, the old champ cars on the dirt. He won a bunch of championships, not only just a lot of races. Hmm. You see, everything but the Indy 500, he had rotten luck there. Hmm. He was a good guy. Hmm. And how did you meet him? Just to... By accident, old Manzanita Speedway down in Phoenix one night. He lived in Tucson, Roger did, and he was up there. He'd been driving jalopies all over Arizona at that time. And we met him down there one night, and... Uh, I don't know, by accident or talking to him or something, put him in the car one time and, man, he stuck with us. We stuck with him for several years then until he went full time. Uh, well, about the time 3A turned into USAC, you know. Yeah. He wound up doing it full time. And I drove it again for a while. And, man, we had Chuck Hulse and a bunch of other guys drove it off and on, you know. Anytime Roger had a weekend off, he'd come out and drive it. Hmm. No, he was he was a heck of a mechanic too. He had a shop in Tucson. Back in them days, mechanics they weren't just drivers. Man, they were builders and mechanics. They did most of their own stuff. The way I put it is, most of these modern drivers anymore they can't even pull their own dipstick. <laughs> <laughs> they don't work on their own cars anymore. Guys used to build them from scratch and then drive them. Yeah, I I, I can't imagine how that wouldn't uh, put you at an advantage to understand the car and know the car and build the yeah. car and yeah. everything, you know? Nowadays, they can't do anything without a computer. Yeah. Back in them days, we didn't even have blueprints. There wasn't blueprints yet. Where did your Roadster sit in the rankings as, as far as street racing? Did you have one of the faster cars or? Uh, for a short while, yeah, for a short while, yeah. Like I said, I did, uh, that speed I did at uh, Bonneville, 
officially it's not a record anymore because the sea roadster record is way up there like i say what they're allowed to do with the cars nowadays man if we'd have done we'd have been in the modified class and then some hmm. but unofficially there's never been a stock bodied roadster with a flathead in it go as fast as i did back in them days but it's unofficial it don't mean nothing <laughs> just well a, just a joke <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, that's something I knew about you going into this. Oh, yeah. Sure. Who I told mean, you that? <laughs> I don't know. I'd always heard that. So. That you were the first guy to put a flathead high boy roadster through at over 150. Yeah, it could have been. I don't know. Well, do you believe BS? You know what BS is? <laughs> What is, that, is that legal? <laughs> what class of car is that? Yeah, BS. That's my class. B Street? <laughs> yeah, that's my class, BS. Anyway. Well, as far as hot rods or roadsters on the street, guys that were around in street racing, what were some of the cars that you remember that were really fast or really well built or both? Or who had a re who had a really... Jack McGrath had a real nice one. He did. That thing went and he drove it. There's a lot of them. In those was his days. car a 32? It was a 32, yeah. Yep. Now, back when we were in school, uh, I don't know if you ever heard this, I come up with a nickname Admiral. Well, later on, a lot of guys just assumed this because I was in the Navy. I wasn't in the Navy. Back in them days, the original old Tromper Hot Rod Club, they were all Model T's and Model A's. I had the only 32. And it was a big monster, everybody thought, in them days, compared to the T's and A's. For some reason, my boat, car was known as a boat. And from that, I became the admiral. Don't ask me what, why, or how. Way back, <laughs> that was in school days. And uh, they still, some guys still call me the admiral. But uh, because of my, I had the only 32 around at that time. You know how popular they are now. Hmm. At that time, I had the only one. Jack McGrath had a 32, but up in this area around Eagle Rock, I had the only one. Hmm. And like I say, they called him a car of the boat and me the admiral because of my old 32. I've seen it on the flyers. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I never was in the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Uh, any other guys that you remember that, that uh, had cars that you really respected? Roadsters, hot rods? Oh boy, a lot of them, so many of them. Germany. Hate to say it, but there ain't many of them left anymore. A lot of guys run real good. Like I say, Likes and Meeks, those guys did. Mm. Of course, they had all the uh, top equipment from Edelbrock, including Edelbrock's Dino, which yeah. we never had, you know. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Jack McGrath, until he quit altogether and went into midgets and sprints in Indianapolis, you know. You mm -hmm. know. Bunch of them guys, they all started out in the street years ago. Well, I know you you kind of have to go, don't you? Well, you know, how much, much more stuff you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's not about me. No. It's not about me. Well, I should get out of here in a little while, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we, we'll finish up here. I just, um, I want to be clear about uh, when, tell me one more time, when you stopped, you got out of racing in the late 60s, is that right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, as far as actually running a car, yeah. I still go, I'm, I still like, I'm, oh, sure. I'm still interested in it, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm not sitting home doing this. I know that. <laughs> See what's being built around here. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll ask you about is I know oh. you're, I know you're building a, a 32 Roadster right now. Yeah. Out of some really nice parts, by the way. Um, but are you specifically trying to kind of recreate your car you used to have, or just well, partially? Similar? Really, it'll be close because there's still going to be a flathead. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be a flathead, and uh, except for just a couple little things, it's all early Ford, really. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. just real mildly hopped up. It's not going to be a race car. Mm -hmm. It'll be a driver. Yeah. Mm. Well. Good done. I'll take you for a ride. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. You owe me a ride in Tommy's Roadster. <laughs> well, that's a good deal. <laughs> I'll trade. <coughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. We'll do that one day. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for your time. Oh, no. I, to... I know this took a lot more of your time than I, you probably uh, intended. I just hope you won't believe half what you heard. <laughs> I, I, think you, I think you're holding out on us, actually. But, <laughs> but thanks. We sure appreciate well, it. Well, it was fun. It's I didn't think anything, anything or anybody would ever care about this stuff. Well, they do. <laughs> I'll tell you. They do. Well, that's interesting, really. Well, that's it. Like I said, I think I told you about when we were kids, we were treated like bums and hell's angels. Uh-huh. Now all at once it got respectable. <laughs> if anybody predicted this years ago, they'd have thought you were crazy. I mean, really, you know. Yeah. Stop and think about it. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Rodcast with our dear old friend Don Zabel. We want to thank Don for his time, his uh, generosity in sharing all of his stories and all of his experiences with us. Special thanks, as always, to our announcer Larry Babb and all our staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios. Our PR person is Angela Helton and our social media directing comes from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. And as always, the theme song is by yours truly. Uh, special thanks always to our archivist and historian Jim Miller, who you heard for the first half of that interview with Don. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian. Without their generosity and passion for preserving the history of hot rodding, none of this would be possible. If you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please check us out online at www.ahrf.com. We're also on Instagram, and we have a great Facebook page that'll keep you up to date on all things happening. You can also sign up for our mailing list, uh, receive updates and news on our quest to preserve and promote the history of hot rodding and land speed racing. Thank you again for uh, tuning in. My name is David Steele, and we really do appreciate it. Tune in next time for another episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of The Rodcast. Brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.